stocks, bonds, ETFs, straight out of downtown Chicago. This is Zach's Market Edge. Welcome to Zach's Market Edge, the podcast about investing in your life. I'm your host, Tracy Reinick. And this week, I'm joined by Zach's chief equity strategist, John Blank, who is also an economist, to talk about the reopening, the recovery of the cities, and possibly, dare I say it, a recession. But first, when I asked John to do this podcast about a week ago, the R word, the recession, was being kind of thrown around again by a lot of people. And believe it or not, it, you know, people were thinking, hey, maybe this could be happening sooner rather than later. But within a week, we're all over that now. The recession is, those worries have passed seemingly again. And we've got a lot of strong economic data, so maybe that's what caused people to, you know, pause on the R word again, because that seemed outrageous. We got weekly jobless claims that suddenly fell below 300,000 for the week. That's a key level, the 300,000. And even coming out of the Great Recession, once we got under 300,000, that meant good things were happening in the economy, not the bad things. So we're the employment numbers are still going in the good direction. We have unemployment now at 4.8%, still declining. Yes, we have a lot of people looking for work. We have a lot of job openings. All of that stuff is going on. But the things that are recession indicators are not indicating. They're not flashing. So, John, when I asked you to be on, I thought, oh, maybe we could talk about, you know, are we in a recession? But I feel like we don't need to talk about it. All right, Tracy, I'm going to throw out, I have my economic projections from October about a week old. Okay, excellent. So let's go through um, two sets of data. And now these are important because these are going to relate to the Fed's statutory mandate of full employment and core PCE expected inflation at no more than 2% on average, okay? So we got to remember, the Fed has a statutory mandate. What that means is there's actually a statute they operate under, and they have to maintain fidelity to these two statistics. So these two statistics are not optional for the Fed. Keep this in mind. So why we're talking about this is because we really need to talk about not only a recession, but the tapering or the lack of tapering or the reverse of tapering and the rising uh, Fed funds rate in down the road. That's really what needs to be concerned with in terms of the the, the stock market. So 2021 on unemployment rate in an annual context, Tracy. So this is the Fed's annual target. They have to get worried about full employment when they reach three and a half percent. That's basically uh, the, the frictional unemployment rate that we saw back before the COVID pandemic, three and a half percent. So 2021, which we are now in October of, the average unemployment rate for 2021 will be 5.5%. Now, to make some sense of this, that's 2% that's missing out of a civilian labor force of 160-some million people, right? So that's about 3.5 million people we've got to add back. Now, 3.5 million people, now let's take 2022. Now I get to what people think is 3.8%. Pretty close to frictional, right? And then 2023 is frictional unemployment at three and a half percent. So the first thing we're going to point out, is if the Fed was only concerned about unemployment, they would not begin to raise federal funds rates unless they were six to 12 months in front of 2023. So the earliest 
the Fed fund rates could be raised next summer. And where the futures are pointing to is December of 2022. Now, that's a simple story. Now, let's make it more complicated. The core price inflation expectations for 2021 are 3.1%. It's too high. 2% is their statutory mandate, and they are at 3.1%. So the question is, why did they not do something? Well, because they still have the employment side. Right, that's it. They had 5.5% unemployment, so they shrugged their shoulders and said, we still have a long way to go for full employment, so we're going to overlook the consumer price inflation that we do have, right? Right, right. So now let's get into 2022. 2.8% core PCE with the unemployment rate at 3.8%. How can you justify that, Tracy? You cannot. That's what I wanted you to say. You cannot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Don't be equivocal about this, Tracy. You said the right thing. You You cannot. It's it's eight-tenths of a point higher, and you're very close to frictional unemployment, right? Yes, exactly. So now let's get into 2023 where you are for certain at full employment, core PCE tracing, and again, don't cheat on, on the exam here, 2.5%. Okay. What do you say? Well, you better, you, you better be doing something. You better be doing something is right. You better yeah. be cranking the rates up because you're over your yeah. target and, you have a, and you've met the statutory amendment on unemployment. So right. the point is, once they get halfway through 2022, they're not only going to raise it once, but raise it until they crack that 2.5% back down to 2 Okay. And that is what we have to worry about is, as stock investors is if this is persistent for two years where they exceed their statutory mandate and they reach full employment, they will be their backs will be against the statutory wall and they will continue to raise the federal funds rate. Not once, like what everybody's worried about right now, but as long as they need to. Right. And we haven't seen this in a long time. And we have not seen this in a long time. So that changes the equity risk premium dynamics. It changes the utilities and the defensives and the real estate REIT type stocks. It changes the bank story. And it also changes the energy story, it turns out. So um, this is... The thing that has to be considered here is, by and large, they are in a bind in terms of their statutory mandate, and they probably will find it much more onerous by the middle of next year. Right. Yes. Pressure. Pressure. Yeah. And it's statutory pressures, right? And so the other thing we need to think about is Jerome Powell gets a term or he doesn't get a term in February of 2022. So the other thing is this particular dialogue is being suppressed while he finds out whether or not he gets a job. That's right. Yeah, forgot about that. The other thing we're talking about here is we're putting on the table what the Fed is is actually very concerned about, but he will not talk about until he has a job or not, right? Right. And we should not be getting down on Jerome Powell for this dynamic. It's certainly what everybody would do until they found out whether they're getting fired or not. Yes. It's just what people do. So I don't want anybody to call up and say Jerome Powell's got some uh, you know, Machiavellian instincts here. He's doing what he's told until he's told he's not the guy. Right. <laughs> and if he's told he is the guy, then what I expect to happen 
is what we have talked about here will go front burner in every newspaper around the world. And that is that they core PC inflation was 3.1 in 2021, 2.8 in 2022, and 2.5 in 2023. And they have a binding statutory mandate to meet that, that decision and bring, drive it down. Okay. Inflation will not be overlooked, Tracy. No, it can't be because people are, are really feeling it now. Yes. And if you look into the real wages and, and Michigan sentiment over the last three months, they have crashed and real wages are down. Yeah. So you particularly have done an amazing job with Twitter pointing out all the, the, the 15 and $20 an hour jobs out there that are coming online. Right. And it needs to be understood. But when you do inflation rates like we're doing forward of 6% annually, you're basically eating a lot of that up anyways. You're just meeting real wage mandates that are out there. You're not actually giving people real wage increases. Right, right. And this is, again, very poorly understood. But at the end of the day, um, we're being sold on absolute increases in wage rates. And we need to understand that it's real increases in wage rates that matter. So what you were talking about, the dynamics in the stock market then. That's what a lot of people listening to this podcast want to know about now. <laughs> right. So if we take the forward price earnings ratio right now, Tracy, it's a 20.5 for next year's earnings. Okay. That's the S&P? That's the S&P 500. Okay. So you, as a value investor, what do you think of a forward PE at 20.5? Well, that's a little stretched for sure. But that's the right language, Tracy. A little stretched. Yeah. It's not terrible. It's, it's not, not terrible. 99. It's but, not 99. It's not terrible. It's right. probably 10% higher than it should be. Right. So that's the other thing people need to keep in mind is if there is indeed a pullback, um, it's very unlikely to be great. I Just to do the math here, when we are in February of 20. 20, the stock market was trading pre-COVID at 3,400, right? That's right. So if we do 12% annual returns, which is the historic norm, that's basically, let's call it 400 points a year, right? Okay. So by February of 2021, which by the way, we're already seven months from, we should have been at 3,800. And so by February of 2022, which is, by the way, only four months away, we should be at 4,200. Right. So what are we at now, Tracy? Um, I don't know. I, I haven't looked, but I, it's over 43 right now, right? I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's 4517. Okay. 45? Oh, my gosh. I haven't, I haven't been paying attention. Right. <laughs> so we got a 4,500 key or 4,500 number on the S&P this morning. And this is October the 19th. Uh, so in February, we should be at 4,200 on average, right? Right, right. So that's 300 points four months ahead. And like we're saying, that's basically like 8%. So if you're going to wring your hands, don't lose, the, don't lose a lot of sleep over this. <laughs> right? But what if you're in one of the key sectors that will be impacted once the Fed starts raising the rates and maybe has to do it, you know, continuously? 
What if you are in the housing stacks, for instance? Should you, should you worry yeah, about those? You should be getting out of those. You should be getting out of those. I think REITs, utilities in particular, are going to get hammered. Beyond that, uh, the banks actually do better because the rates go up. Right. right. Um, and then there's a fair number of cyclical ones that are just kind of not big enough changes when I've looked into it to make a bit of difference and should care about. So the basic point is that if a stock is basically a true income stock, not a value stock, but a true income stock, right? Right. Like the drug, the drug companies or something like that? The or? drug companies, the REITs that pay four and a half. You, you like yeah. a lot of these uh, MLPs in, in energy. Yeah, right? yeah. So if anything's paying three, four, five percent or a utility like Southern Company or something like that, you know, Duke Energy or, you know, Exelon or whatever they, they, they call themselves these days, uh, and they pay three, four percent to get income investors on, in the stock, those are going to get hammered. So if you're looking for high dividend, if you played high dividend stocks, agnostically speaking across sectors, those are the ones that are going to get hit when the rates start to go up. Because then I, what can happen is you just say, well, I can buy a corporate and make 5%, so why should I bother with this stupid wreath that moves around? Right, exactly. So it's just going to be an asset allocation. Largely will be mechanically driven by a lot of these you know, dimensional fund advisor groups that just do this mechanically. And it will happen automatically and in, in your face and indiscriminately once it starts to roll. Okay. And we should also point out on October the 19th, when I look at the 10-year rate, it is at 1.63%. That's right. Now, in terms of how quickly this can get out of hand, this is now back to the June highs of this year. We've been staggering around for a good long time, and now we're going back. And if we break 1.7, 1.75, which, by the way, Tracy, we're 10, 15 basis points from, we can run all the way up 2.5%, 3% right now. Okay. But wouldn't that be likely to happen? Because, you know, they are going, the market is going to anticipate what we're discussing, that the Fed right. needs to start actually raising, not just the taper, but raising the rates Right, because the 10-year Treasury note is incorporating 10 years forward of Fed funds rate annually. So that will include one year next year that doesn't have any Fed funds rates and nine years with a lot of them. So, yes, this is the issue right now as we speak on October the 19th. You need to worry about your income stocks. Okay. Because the forward look on this is immediate, right? And if it breaks that 1.7 handle... 175, which was the highs in March of 21. Uh, we can run. I'll I'll take it. I'll take the chart out to three years and tell you how far we can run. We can run all the way up to two and a half pretty quick. Two and a half is a Rubicon to watch because again we talked about the core PCE rate in 2023 basically being around that, right? Right. So, again, on a 10-year forward look, when 10-year notes look like the inflation rate and you have a real rate at zero, two and a half is kind of that next level where this thing can end up at. And see, then if you're in a stock that had pays 3% dividends when it was 1.2 on a 10-year treasury, whatever, but when it, a treasury note pays two and a half, a lot of these machines just switch over. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah, so this is the issue. The Fed taper... Starts in November, mid-November or mid-December. 
It'll take out 10 billion of treasuries and 5 billion of mortgage backs a month for six or seven months till they run down the 120 a month. You can do the math yourself. You got 15 billion a month. Six months will take you down 90 billion. Seven, eight months will take you down to 120 billion. So they got eight months. So you start in November, December, you got six months, end of June, maybe middle of July, the taper's over. Okay. Now, I want to point out to people that the market's already priced in the taper. So you being a genius about the taper is really late. <laughs> right. 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 And yeah. the other thing I want to point out that also gets overlooked in the news media is the taper is not a done deal, even though it's certainly a done deal to do it in November, December. They will do the 15 billion and they will still have their meetings every month. And if the market doesn't like it or the rates go crazy, they will stop. So I would not have anything more than a pencil put in play for this 15 billion over the next seven, eight months because they did not ink it in. It, it will change if it doesn't work and it will change higher or lower or, or nothing. Right. 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 So I will tell people that their base case should be the Fed taper, but there should be wide, wide tails going both directions on whether it really happens okay and they will be very vigilant and every meeting will have this this concern raised and they will just walk it down and have this discussion one meeting after another so do not get lured into basically what i'm trying to point out is is to this consensus view that the tape is over in june and everything just works like this yes do that okay Meetings happen at the Fed for a reason. Data comes in at the Fed. They look at it, and they really will care about what happens to the stock market, right? And we know, just talking through, they will put up with, you know, they know the market should be at 4,200 in February. So the market should be at 4,500, where it is now in July of next year. They wouldn't, I think they would tolerate 4,000 next year at that time, right? Right, right. I don't think they would tolerate anything less than 4,000 throughout this taper. And let's let's just put that number out there. Why four thousand? Because I just don't think you know they're gonna they could do a six eight percent return off that thirty four hundred and go to four thousand and say okay, now the market's getting depressed about something, and then they're gonna have a discussion. And frankly, I think it is fair to say the Fed cares about stocks. I mean, again, Jerome Powell's certainly not gonna state that before February twenty twenty one. No, <laughs> and Kaplan and Rosen or burger gone we know this right but the fed since 08 has been driven by you know uh wall street interests and certainly it cares about stocks i just i'm putting it out there don't shoot me i'm just your messenger but it's true right so with all of this discussion there's been you know the the weakness in the tech stocks every time the 10 year starts to have a, these little mini rallies. And so what what's the implication for the tech stocks then if we see some kind of quick rise to 2% yields or even higher, as you just mentioned, to 2.5%? Should What should I be doing with my tech investments then? Well, this is, you know, it's very hard to get cynical about tech stocks when they have been rallying for 10 years straight and never down. That's right. So the first step is to realize your worries are gonna probably, you're not gonna time it right if it does go down and it could go down years from now before you actually happens or it could happen immediately with the 10 year rate rising. 
But to no degree is any of that automatic. It's all because some machine will take it as an input and then make it happen. There's no deep economic theory that says the tenure goes to two and a half and all tech stocks sell off, right? Right, right. There is no deep theory. There is no big machine. Deus ex machina is a language of God and machine. You you hear this a lot in graduate school when you're in economics, the deus ex machina. There is no deus ex machina. There is no God and machine. It'll do whatever people talk it up or down to do, and that will include what the Fed puts in its own hand about what it thinks. Okay. Keep in mind that you know that there's still a human element to all of this, and they're really it's entirely possible that two and a half percent, three percent of the tenure is overlooked because it says, Oh, the Fed is finally getting back to the mandate, and that language in the discussion goes there, or the net, the language can go towards this whole rotation and all this indiscriminate selling and all this asset allocation stuff. Uh, and be and you know choose your flavor in terms of whether you're bearable about what the market will listen to. Okay. On the inflation front, what if these projections, the target for 2022, which is 2.8% right now, down from this year's 3.1, what if they get that wrong? What if it's still much hotter than everything accelerates at a quicker pace, right? That we just discussed. That's it. That's the issue, right? Okay. Yeah, you just put on the table the big elephant in the room that the hundred ships in LA get to 150. Right. Price through the seasonal time for the next six months. You know, by the time they clear the backlog, the the, the inventory constraints and retail stretch into the summer. Then all the wage people go nuts. They start a wage push inflation to meet that that higher price. Right. And the Fed has a big problem on their hands, and the CPI core is 3-1 next year. Right, exactly. Yeah, and then you're like, oh, I didn't know that. And you got to say truthfully that having looked through COVID retail, COVID retail spending, COVID retail categories over the last two weeks, it is fair to say the economics profession got this wrong. Okay. That About- there should have, I mean, there was far too much belief in a Goldilocks scenario here, and that's certainly not the case. It's not even close. Correct. <laughs> Everybody thought you could shut down the global economy for two months, you could reopen it, and everything would just be the same, and it would all go back to normal. Yeah. And that clearly is not happening. No, and, and you're <laughs> laughing because it's so obvious it wasn't going to be true. Right. I mean, I wrote a piece that got a lot of news media back in like February where I said there's no Goldilocks zone. Yeah. And Jamie Dimon himself said, no, in his annual letter, we still believe in the Goldilocks zone, but we're ready for something else. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So let's put on the table what happens. Truthfully, everybody in corporate economics consulting inside these companies doesn't want to get fired by sticking their necks out and going to the boss and saying it's going to be a train wreck. Right. And there's some value in that because you don't know until you don't know. But at the end of the day, a lot of it's just the risk aversion of having a corporate job and not actually calling things out. Yeah. And and this has been the case. I have seen very little uh, penance being drawn by the economics profession on on absolutely 100% missing this thing. Wasn't yeah. close, Tracy. It wasn't no, even close. No. 
And I feel that some of the estimates we have for when it could return to normal are way off as well. Like yeah. just talking with the businesses um, and what they're seeing. We're already in October of 2021 and everybody just thinks, oh, by like next March, it'll be back. But when you talk with them, no, they, they think it's out at least two years to even get back to any kind of normalcy. And a couple of people I talked to actually, they're not rooting for a recession, but they're hoping for some kind of economic, at least cooling off in the demand, like the consumer demand, especially, because then that will give them a little bit of a chance to catch their breath and try to get, get you know, caught up and, um, you know, wait for some of these supply chain issues to work their way through. So, for instance, I've heard of, you know, some of the paint manufacturers don't have lids for the cans. They have the chemicals and things to make the paint, but they're waiting on the lids. So how long until that like works its way through? And then there's, you know, other on the chemical side where they are, they cannot get like one part of one component chemical of whatever it is, the product that they're making. So they have to wait on that. And all this is causing, you know, so there's massive inflation on the product that is already made out there because people, manufacturers are willing to pay whatever it costs to get it because it's going into their product to, to some extent. And they've been able to pass along those price increases to the consumers so far. But now I'm hearing, you know, some pushback now, even on the manufacturing side, that the price increases are just so outrageous that they're not even, they're halting pr producing the item, um, even though that means that they're going to have lower sales because they just can't keep pushing through these huge price increases. So I feel like a lot of people who think, oh yeah, in like six months, it'll be fine. As soon as those ships out there in LA and Savannah are unloaded, it'll get back. But there's other, you know, tons of other components that are all messed up now in the economy, including the labor side. We, we can't here's, even get enough. Here's a thought for you that I that I I sustained out of my research into retail spending. I'll throw this out there because it's again cyclicality is a word that you know makes you sound professional, but it isn't worth a damn. So let's talk about this. First COVID shutdown hit. The first retail spending card with ballistic was grocery stores, right? Correct. And if you look at grocery store spending since that time to the moment we're talking, it didn't go down much, Tracy. No. Stayed home and continued yes. to eat out of grocery stores. So That's then right. you had uh, January, February, another set of categories when the vaccination drive began. You know, general merchandise stores took off. Then you had all of this cycle up, and it actually didn't go down. And then across all of this, Non-store retail, internet spending just kept trucking, yeah. right? Yeah. So what happens is grocery stores keep hammering it. General merchandise stores take a vaccination lift and the internet retail goes up. So everything goods related is just cycling up together. Yeah. There's nothing decelerating. Yeah. And this is what I see as I looked into it. The only thing that decelerated, Tracy, frankly, was electronics goods spending. Because people stopped, they bought it, you know, you bought your computer and you don't need one now. Right. right? 
And the kids went back to school, so you didn't and the need. Kids to. went back to school and all yeah. that. So the only yeah. thing that cycled down or went sideways was electronic spending. But then you got this thing in motor vehicles. You talked about the part shortage, just to show you how crazy that got. The average annual monthly units on light vehicle sales is sixteen to seventeen million. They are doing a twelve million run rate right now. They're five million vehicles, twenty five percent lower than they usually are because of this parts issue. So, what you can see happening here is what happens is the grocery stores hammer and take all that in. The internet retail hammers and takes all their goods in. All the general merchandise stores hammer it and then take all it in. And then the, the clowns trying to bring in parts for their for their cars are stuck. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. right? And then I tell you all this in terms, and you say, how is this going to end in June? Right? It's not. It cannot. That's it, Tracy. We got we to gotta throw cold water over a lot of people not actually being specific enough about what they can see and identify the data. Yeah. Because even with uh, the announcement yesterday that Zillow was going to stop buying cash houses, so they've been, they have this whole new program as an iBuyer. You can go online, you can put in your address, you can see what your house is worth, and then Zillow will buy it from you in cash within 10 to 90 days. And you do have to pay fees. It's like, you know, 5% to 10% depending, and there, you have to pay a little bit of closing costs. But a lot of people like this option because they don't have to fix up their house. They don't have to hire agents. They don't have to do showings, none of this. They can just sell it and walk away. Well, yesterday they announced we're halting buying nationwide any more houses because they can't get the parts to fix it up. So Zillow will take that house, they'll put in new flooring, the new carpet, new appliances, they'll paint it, whatever needs to be done to make it you know, look a little bit nicer so that they resell it, they flip it for a profit, but they, they can't get labor, they can't get the parts. Um, the home builders have already said they can't get it either and they have better sourcing than Zillow does. So they've just halted it altogether. So if they really thought, oh, this is just a temporary thing and you know, it's, it's, it's only gonna be a couple of months, I don't think they'd be halting all buying. They would slow it, but to me, halting is pretty dramatic, saying we're not buying anything else. Yeah, the other thing I'll point out to people in hindsight, and I'm speaking in hindsight on a COVID pandemic that nobody saw coming. But the other obvious mistake we made was to tariff the snot all everything in globalization before we went into the COVID pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, a, what an erroneous moment where you're going to need the global supply chains to crank up and you go ahead and tariff everything. Yeah. Well. Aren't those still on? The tariffs are still on. Yeah. So the other thing we got to start to wonder about is when, you know, people pointed this out and say, why are we tariffing this? Like, at least take those off. I mean, the reason we're not is because they, they're seen as leverage in some negotiation with the Chinese and other people. Right. right. But at the end of the day, um, when is someone going to call it out and say, hey, we can just lower these prices 20 percent by rid of the stupid tariffs, right? Yeah. Uh, again, I'm just telling you what I'm not telling you, you know, this is only in hindsight with the benefit of looking at what we're at now in the face of what happened to spending on goods. Right, right. Supply chains. Yeah. But if I'm just looking at this today and I'm in the government and I'm looking at this, the easy 
target is just to get rid of tariffs. Okay. Right. Well, on some stuff, but I mean, that's, I don't think we have as many in, you know, for Vietnam and some of the other areas. Yeah. But you would definitely just say, hey, let's just untariff ourselves because it's stupid and we need to get the prices down and move stuff quicker. Yeah. Well, that could be coming. We'll, we'll see. That's, that's what I'm pointing out. It, it, this is a dialogue. And again, that you might be surprised will start to happen. Yeah. Okay. So based on our discussion so far today, it looks like banks are the place I want to be. And I've been bullish on the banks all this year. I feel like they're going to enter into a new bull market which they would if these rates start rising. Their earnings will rise. Their balance sheets are pristine still. Um, so I really like the banks. Do you have any favorite banks? Should people just be buying the JP Morgans and Bank of Americas? Are there, or like a PNC, a regional guy? Should they be in like, you know, it's a lot harder to do the community banks, but I know some people out there have a local community bank in their neighborhood or some, or even that they might bank with that maybe they you know um have checked out and think would be a good investment in this kind of scenario that we're laying out do you have anything yeah, I, mean, I think quality stocks in the banking industry will get bid up more than the non-quality ones okay so that would be like you know jp morgan is usually considered to be right pncs and those big names okay. that always work i mean i just for example, I personally bought Wells Fargo at the bottom and it didn't do me any good. I should have bought JP Morgan. Okay. So that was the old I've I've gotten sucked into that as a value investor many times. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, it's struggling. It's the cheapest one. It'll turn it around at some point, but really the winners are winning. So just stick with the winners. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> a really hard lesson. Because you yeah. look at Wells Fargo and you think, oh, it's, you know, God, it's so cheap. I should, you know. Right. And then I did it, and you know what? It didn't do anything for me. Yeah. Okay. It didn't do anything for me, Tracy. I mean, I didn't obviously lose money. Right, right. But in terms of the relative valuation trade, I could have got PNC and done probably 10% better. Yeah. yeah. Over the same time, length of time and lost zero sleep, and everyone had bought it up anyways. Okay. So, yeah, that's the other trap here is to realize within a certain group, if it's slightly overpriced, that's the one everybody wants, and you got the buying momentum there. Yeah, yeah. And this is very hard as a stock picker or trader investor. Like I bought some crazy chip stock from large cap trader because it was running and it had a huge multiple, and I bought it for three months and made twenty five percent got out of it. Okay. Right? Yeah. I used to think that was dumb. I don't think that's dumb anymore. Okay. And so that's the value investing. If you look into it and there's three stocks that are in a name, you know, three pharma stocks, three bank stocks, and one slightly more bid than the others, just actually go there. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Just all the it, banks are cheap. It kills you because you're a value investor, but that's true, usually the case. Yeah. But I feel like all the big all the banks of any size are actually pretty cheap here because they have yeah. been. I would agree with that. And I think, yeah. like I said, I didn't lose money at Wells Fargo. If you bought it with me, we're all fine. Yeah. Okay. This is good to know. And what do you think about um, the energy side of things? That's been running all year. It's the, the best performing sector. Is, <laughs> is that over or? That's very hard to, for me to put a call out there because OPEC plus runs that market. Yeah. yeah. And they have effectively dialed in the restraint 
who have far more than people realize in this scenario. And if they choose not to do that and under pressure from Biden or somebody else, yeah, uh, that can end in a heartbeat. It just all depends on what they want to do. It's a decision. It's not a, again, that's truly just a political decision that they're making. As far as they can tell, what I see now is they're just deciding that in the face of all the inflation out there, they're not getting as much pressure as they might otherwise have because they're not being targeted as much. Right, because everything else is surging up as well. So they're right. not, you know, you can't just focus on them as like, oh, look, $4 a gallon oil or clean. Right. How dare you? Because everything else is rising. Too. Right, because tins up, coppers up, you know, iron yeah. ore is up. Yeah. I mean, basically, they're like, they're like getting a free pass right now. Yeah. But that's political. I mean, when yeah. the free pass goes out, you know, I don't know, whatever it does. Okay. But that puts a big risk premium into oil prices. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And that's people understand there's a huge political risk premium in oil prices right now. All right. Well, we'll keep that in mind, but it sounds like banks are the way to go. So JP Morgan, JPM, Bank of America's BAC, Goldman Sachs just had a great earnings report. GS is the ticker there. PNC is one of the favorites of the regional banks. It's also big, but it just doesn't have the international type of and the trading and some things like JP Morgan has. PNC is that ticker. There is Wells Fargo, WFC, but it still had issues in this last quarterly report. Still hasn't figured it out, fixed it all. I think one of the signs is that finally um, Berkshire Hathaway is almost completely out or they, they're very close to being almost completely out of that position. And it was one of the favorites for Warren Buffett for many years, but even he's thrown in the towel on that one. And there are many um, smaller, uh, more community banks. I've talked about in the past, West Banco, one of my favorites in West Virginia, actually. WSBC is the ticker there. Um, and uh, U- United Community Banks, UCBI, I'm trying to remember the ticker there. That's in the Southeast. There's a lot of, if you're looking at these regional or more community banks, head for the areas where there's a lot of economic growth, where people are moving, companies are going, because that's where the growth in the bank is gonna come from too. And that's UCBI because they're in the Southeast, a very hot uh, economic market right now. So there's some ideas and we'll see what, what else happens, John. I'm gonna have you on again, hopefully at the end of the year, that's coming up soon so we can talk about 2022. The Fed might be have started tapering, hopefully, by the time I have you on again. And we'll see what else is happening with the inflation story and the unemployment. And even with Chairman Powell, we should know something as we get towards the end of the year about whether or not he's going to have his job back. So there's going to be a lot going on. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can get us on Amazon Music. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Spotify. Anywhere where you can get podcasts, you can get The Market Edge. And I'll see you again next week with some more stocks. This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identified 
identified and described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.